This is a Net News Network headline news brought to you by the Behind the Line podcast, bringing you all the crazy, chaotic news from around the United States and the world. Tune in to what you won't hear the MSN talking about. Well, I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving weekend. So let's get into the news because there's a lot of it. The San Francisco Police Department is proposing a new policy that would give robots the license to kill. As reported earlier by Mission Local, the draft policy, which outlines how the SFPD can use military-style weapons, states robots can be used as a deadly force option when risk of loss of life to members of the public or officers is imminent and outweighs any other force option. As reported by Mission Local, members of the city's Board of Supervisors Rules Committee have been reviewing the new equipment policy for several weeks. The original version of the draft didn't include any language surrounding robots' use of deadly force until Aaron Peskin, the dean of the city's Board of Supervisors, initially added that robots shall not be used as a use of force against any person. However, the SFPD returned the draft with a red line crossing out Peskin's edition, replacing it with the line that gives robots the authority to kill suspects. According to Mission Local, Peskin eventually decided to accept the change because there could be scenarios where deployment of lethal force was the only option. San Francisco's Rules Committee unanimously approved a version of the draft last week, which will face the Board of Supervisors on November 29th. As outlined in the equipment policy, the SFPD currently has 17 remotely piloted robots, but only 12 are functioning. In addition to granting robots the ability to use deadly force, the proposal also authorizes them for use in training and simulations, criminal apprehensions, critical incidents, exigent circumstances, executing a warrant, or during suspicious device assessments. While most of the robots listed in the SFPD's inventory are primarily used for defusing bombs or dealing with hazardous materials, newer remote models have an optional weapon system and the department's existing f5a has a tool called the pan disruptor that can load 12 gauge shotgun shells it's typically used to detonate bombs from a distance the department's kinetti q talon can also be modified to hold various weapons a weaponized version of the robot is currently used by the u.s army and can equip grenade launchers, machine guns, or even a 50 caliber anti-material rifle. SFPD has always had the ability to use lethal force when the risk of loss of life to members of the public or officers are imminent and outweigh any other force option available, says SFPD Officer Eve. I'm not even going to try to say her last name. In a statement to The Verge, SFPD does not have any sort of specific plan in place as the unusually dangerous dangerous or spontaneous operations where SFPDs need to deliver deadly force via robot would be rare and exceptional circumstance. The Dallas Police Department used a robot to carry out deadly force for the first time in 2016. It used a bomb disposal robot, the same remote five F5A model owned by the SFPD, armed with an explosive device to kill a suspect who shot and killed five police officers and wounded several others. At the time, Dallas Police Chief David Brown said the department saw no other option but to use our bomb robot and place a device on its extension for it to detonate where the suspect was. Last month, a report from The Intercept revealed that California's Oakland Police Department was also considering letting shotgun-equipped remote F5A robots use deadly force. Shortly after the report came out, the Oakland PD announced on Facebook it decided against adding armed remote vehicles to the department. Meanwhile, a group of robot makers, including Boston Dynamics, signed a pledge not to weaponize their robots earlier this year. Well, I can definitely see it from both sides. If you have a suspect holed up, rather than sending SWAT officers in and risking people getting shot, you know, you could send a robot in. But, boy, there sure will have to be some strict rules about how these robots can be used and when. Because you don't want to be just having robots driving around and killing people. I mean, obviously somebody's controlling it, but still. Those decisions need to be made from people on the ground with a full vision of what's going on. 
you definitely wouldn't want to see police robots equipped with grenade launchers and, and military-style weapons, but... Strange times. This next story is quite alarming. It comes from Project Veritas. They released a video today. I suggest you go to their website and take a look at it, but I'm going to skim over what this video includes. Project Veritas released a new video today featuring a whistleblower working with a federal government agency called the Council of Inspector General of Integrity and Efficiency. The whistleblower, Tara Lee Rodas, volunteered to assist the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services with the processing of unaccompanied migrant children and was deployed to the emergency intake site in Pomona, California. Rodas sat down with Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe and described how precarious she believes the current child sponsorship program is for these minors. Here are some of the statements made in today's video. Tara Lee Rodas, Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. I quote, the tax dollars of people who are listening to my testimony to Project Veritas are paying to put children in the hands of criminals. Our sponsors typically are not citizens. They're not permanent residents. They don't have a legal presence. The sponsor can hold up an order of deportation to a migrant child and say, this is your order of deportation. If you do not do what I say, when I say, I'm going to call ICE on you myself. We are paying to put children in the hands of criminals. I said to the command center executives, we're getting ready to send another child to Austin, Texas, and they said, Tara, I think you need to understand that we only get sued if we keep kids in care too long. We don't get sued by traffickers. Are you clear? We don't get sued by traffickers. So that was the answer of the United States federal government. HHS did not want this information to get out. She went on to say they knew I had made protected disclosures and they retaliated against me as a whistleblower and had me kicked off the site so I could no longer research the cases. A migrant female child said that an aunt sponsored me but she kicked me out of her house. She was pimping me and I didn't like that. She would pimp me to men. She went on to say, I just escaped one night. I told her, her aunt, I'm going to the laundromat. She went to the laundromat and didn't find me there. Later on, she called immigration. Project Veritas will be releasing more information on this issue this week as the story continues to develop. Whistleblowers who are aware of similar situations are invited to contact Project Veritas at veritastips at protonmail.com with information the public deserves to know about. Again, the complete video is at the Project Veritas website, and you can share the video from their website. Very alarming that the government is knowingly putting children into trafficking situations. I guess it should be no surprise, should it? Seriously disturbing if members of our federal government are knowingly putting children in the hands of traffickers and not doing anything about it. Where is the ACLU and human rights organizations on this? Where are Democrats who seem to be so concerned about these migrants at the border? Do you not care about what happens to them once they get into this country? I mean, you're so concerned about them being allowed to come here and once they get here, you just don't care anymore about what becomes of them? Regardless if they're illegal or not, this is no way for children to be treated when they come into this country, and they should be protected. Oh, remember when Biden told us that he had stopped the railroad workers' strike and made a big show of it before the election? Well, I told you then that it was only postponed and that they hadn't agreed to anything permanent because they didn't get the sick leave that they had asked for, and they still don't have it. And now you've got a strike looming, and old President Biden on Monday asked Congress to intervene and block a railroad strike before next month's deadline, installed contract talks. 
and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said lawmakers would take up legislation this week to impose the deal that unions agreed to in September. Let me be clear, a rail shutdown would devastate our economy, Biden said in his statement. Without freight rail, many U.S. industries would shut down. In another statement, Pelosi said, we are reluctant, reluctant uh-huh, to bypass the standard ratification process for the tentative agreement, but we must act to prevent a catastrophic nationwide rail strike which would grind our economy to a halt. This is the Democrat Party, folks, the party of unions, and they are union busting right here. The union didn't agree to this, and yet they're going to force this down the union's throat. They're going to force these guys to work under the crappy conditions that they've worked under for years and years. No leave, no time off, no paid time off. Just ignore these workers' concerns and force it down their throat and force them to go to work. Pelosi said the House would not change the terms of the September agreement, which would challenge the Senate to approve the House bill without changes. The September agreement that Biden and Pelosi are calling for is a slight improvement over what the Board of Arbitrators recommended in the summer. The September agreement added three unpaid days off a year. Three. I think they had like one paid day off. Now they get four. Three unpaid days off a year for engineers and conductors to tend to medical appointments, as long as they schedule them at least 30 days in advance. <laughs> if you get ill and need to take time off suddenly, how are you supposed to schedule it 30 days in advance? This is ridiculous. These are Democrats. These are supposedly union-supporting Democrats supporting this trash. The railroads also promised in September not to penalize workers who are hospitalized and to negotiate further with the unions after the contract is approved. Yeah, right. About improving the regular scheduling of days off. Hundreds of business groups have been urging Congress and the president to step in to the deadlock contract talk and prevent a strike. It's just disgusting, right? Biden said that he's... He is a proud pro-labor president. He was reluctant to override the views of people who voted against the agreement. Yeah. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal. I just think it's pathetic. And I hope people see it for what it is. This is not... It's not right. And at the very least, Biden should negotiate or force them to get more reasonable uh, sick leave. These guys work their butts off, and it's not fair the way they're being treated. And it's not fair the way they don't get time off like anybody else does. The fact is, they're on call 24-7, 365 days a year, even on their days off, their scheduled days off, they're still subject to be called back. And many workers said they can never schedule anything on their days off, even because they always get called back to work. This is wrong. This is not good working conditions conducive to a family or anything else. You have to have time off. You'll lose your mind. Ah, but the, the president's going to force this down their throat anyway. Sad. As if we haven't had our fill of viruses over the last few years, the oldest ever zombie virus has been revived after 48,500 years frozen. French scientists have revived a prehistoric zombie virus frozen under a Russian lake for nearly 50,000 years and issued a warning that risks posed by ancient diseases are only increasing. Well, maybe you shouldn't go digging them up. Their study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, described 13 viruses the team dug out of the Siberian permafrost, a layer of permanently frozen ground that is beginning to thaw breathing life back into organisms long trapped inside. At 48,500 years old, the most ancient of the bunch, called Pandora virus, Yadoma, is now the oldest infectious disease virus to ever be unfrozen, the New York Post reported. 
It was found 16 meters below a lake in Russia's Far East. The team wrote, there's more work to be done understanding the nature of the threat posed by organisms not seen on Earth for as long as 2 million years. But in the meantime, the risks are bound to increase amid climate change that's accelerating the thaw and drawing more people to populate the Arctic, their study says. The study says that anthrax outbreaks among Siberian reindeer have been linked to spores unleashed by century-old thawing animal carcasses, as reported by NPR. The team only analyzed viruses that infect microscopic amoebas, which they say makes the risk of an accidental spillover totally negligible. But according to the study, a Russian lab is conducting a more risky search for paleoviruses in the frozen remains of mammoths, woolly, rhinoceroses, and prehistoric horses. While describing that research is risky, the team describes two viruses it recovered from a large amount of mammoth wool and the frozen intestines of a Siberian wolf. Even though the team only looked at amoeba-targeting viruses, they say their findings indicate much more dangerous germs could be waiting in the ice. The ease with which these new viruses were isolated suggests that infectious particles of viruses specific to many other hosts, including animals, remain probably abundant in ancient permafrost, the study says. Well, that's just great. So, the Russians are thawing out ancient viruses to do what with exactly this seems like a very bad idea these are things that humans have not been exposed to so no doubt they would have very bad consequences on the human population if somehow it gets into it that's something to keep your eye on Well, I talk about preparedness a lot, and there's a reason why you should be prepared, no matter where you live. Houston, Texas. More than two million people in the Houston area were urged to boil their tap water Monday after a power outage at a purification plant prompted the mayor to initiate a review of what went wrong. The boil order notice tells customers in the nation's fourth-largest city to boil water before it's used for cooking, bathing, or drinking. Multiple Houston-area public and private schools, as well as some local colleges, were closed Monday as a result of the notice, while others made adjustments to provide affected campuses with bottled water and sanitizer. Houston Independent School District officials said in a Monday afternoon statement that closures would continue through Tuesday due to the logistical challenges caused by the notice. Those challenges prevent the district from being able to provide meals for its students and ensure safe water is available for students and staff. The notice was issued Sunday, hours after two transformers failed, causing power outages at a water plant, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner said at a press conference Monday. There was no indication the water system had been contaminated. Water quality testing was underway, Turner said. He said he expects the notice to be lifted by early Tuesday at the latest once the state's environmental agency given an all-clear after analyzing test results. According to Turner, the city issued a notice which affects all of Houston and multiple adjacent areas in an abundance of caution after the two transformers, a main one and its backup, uniquely and coincidentally failed. The problem affected the plant's ability to treat water and pump water into the transmission system, resulting in low water pressure. Because the issue was within the plant's system, backup power generators would not have made a difference, Turner said. Since the transformers were down, they couldn't transmit power to the plant. The power system at the water plant undergoes regular maintenance, Turner said, but he did not give a timeline for how often. The mayor said he has ordered a diagnostic review of the system to understand how this was possible and how it can be prevented. Sixteen sensors marked dips under the minimum pressure levels required by the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, 14 of them for only two minutes, and two of them for nearly 30 minutes, Turner said. Typically, there's enough pressure for water to flow out of leaky pipes when pressure is lost. However, contamination like bacteria sitting near pipes can be sucked into the system, creating a health risk. Reliable electricity is a top priority for any water system that must move vast amounts of heavy water through the treatment plant and to people, said George Hawkins, who ran Washington, D.C.'s water provider for about eight years. The issue I feared the most was power loss, he said. Like Houston, Hawkins said an electric failure once forced part of Washington, D.C. to temporarily boil its water. 
There is no place you are that is immune to these types of emergencies, whether you're in the fourth largest city in the country or some small country town, you should be prepared for things like this. You should have clean water available to you without having to rely on the city or county system. The boil water notice has been lifted in Houston as of today, but now they're saying they need $25 million to replace aging city pipes. And this is a problem across the country with infrastructure. You know, infrastructure that was supposedly going to be fixed by the Biden administration passing the infrastructure bill. And yet, have you seen any major infrastructure projects take place across the country yet? No. This is why you need to prepare for yourself and you need to be able to take care of yourself. Do not rely on the government to take care of you. We've all gotten soft, fat, and happy with all the services that are provided to us by the government. And this is just a small example of what can go wrong. Yes, it was fixed quickly, but what if it wasn't? What if it was like these other cities that have water issues where they haven't had clean drinking water for months, years even? They rarely talk about this stuff. This is why you need to prepare. It's prudent. It's an insurance policy for you and your family. Well, you've probably seen all the protests going on in China about the COVID restrictions and lockdowns. And these uh, protests are starting to spring up all over the country. And so I heard that uh, there were tanks rolled into a, a city yesterday. And so I googled China news and not a single story came up about it. It's all basketball and a few stories about the protests and some other things, but nothing about these tanks being rolled into the city. So then I looked up Chinese tanks and one story, the Daily Mail covered this. No other news agencies covered this boggles my mind. This is a big deal. The military rolling into a city to quell a protest. Several military tanks have rolled through the streets of China as Beijing ramped up its crackdown against demonstrators who are protesting against President Xi Jinping's disastrous zero-COVID policy. Video shows a steady stream of tanks trundling through the eastern city of Zhao on Monday night. The footage will rekindle memories of the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989, where hundreds, if not thousands, of Chinese protesters were killed by soldiers in tanks. Xi's Communist Party officials have ramped up their crackdown on demonstrators, with police officers seen wrestling with protesters before dragging them away. Video shows a steady stream of tanks trundling through the eastern city on Monday night. So, why isn't this being covered? Why is American media choosing to ignore this government response in China? I find it very interesting that our media is choosing to ignore this. Hundreds of protesters have taken to the streets since the weekend in protests fueled by anger over the unrelenting lockdowns as well as deep-rooted frustrations over China's political direction. They mark the largest anti-government demonstrations China has seen since the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989. Chinese officials have ramped up their crackdown against the protests in the wake of the Western media's coverage of Xi's rule being criticized over a zero-COVID policy, which has resulted in millions of people living under strict lockdown restrictions for months. But despite the heavy police presence, some protesters defiantly continued in their historic demonstrations last night in Shanghai. Around six police officers were seen surrounding one demonstrator who was heard shouting for help. The protester is seen trying to stop the officers from arresting him, but to no avail as they dragged him away. In the northeastern city of Xi'an, 
a group of protesters clashed with hazmat officials. The demonstrators were seen picking up roadblock and pushing it towards the officials last night. Scores of police officers wearing hazmat suits were also seen in the southern city of Gangzhou last night as officials tried to curb the angry protests. It's funny that the Western media has criticized China's handling of COVID lockdowns, and yet they don't say anything about the military getting involved in these protests and trying to quell these protests. They only let you see what they want you to see, folks. Well, here's a story that'll come as no surprise. The White House is lying about U.S. energy production. After the White House claimed that U.S. oil producers have plenty of opportunities to drill domestically, some executives are slamming the administration's completely inaccurate, flat-out lie. We basically tracked about 125 specific actions that this administration and the Democratic Congress have done to slow down or stop oil production in America. American Energy Alliance President Tom Pyle said on Varney & Company Tuesday, he has an America last energy policy. When asked by Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey why President Biden would rather let U.S. companies drill for oil in Venezuela than here in the U.S., Monday, NSC Strategic Communication Coordinator John Kirby defended easing oil sanctions against Venezuela, saying that there are plenty of untapped opportunities for companies to drill in the United States. On Saturday, the Treasury Department announced its decision to allow California-based Chevron to resume limited energy production in Venezuela after years of sanctions that have dramatically curtailed oil and gas profits that have flowed to Maduro's government. Kirby told Ducey that his framing of the question was not an accurate take on the president's view, to which Ducey retorted that the president himself earlier this month said, there is no more drilling. There are plenty of opportunities for oil and gas companies to drill here in the United States, Kirby said. I'll let Chevron speak for this particular issue of sanctions relief, but our expectation is it won't be a lot of oil coming out of there. It will have to be shipped to the United States. In response, United Refining Company Chairman and CEO John Katmatadis also told host Ashley Webster on Tuesday that the move makes no sense at all. After noting that Canada has the ability to export an additional 1 million barrels of crude oil per day to the U.S., can anybody figure out why we're giving business to Venezuela, who's associated with China, <laughs> Russia, Katsimidis Act, asked, why are we giving them the business and not giving it to Canada? He also said he was left puzzled by the White House's response to the issue. While Washington needs checks and balances, I hope we have additional checks and balances now that it'll be a Republican Congress, at least, the billionaire CEO said. Pyle explained why the Biden administration may prefer to get oil from Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, as opposed to Texas, New Mexico, and North Dakota. He simply wants to placate his big donors who don't want to see fossil fuels produced in this country, Pyle said, and meanwhile we're all hurting and will continue to hurt under these policies. The American Energy Alliance president also warned about the environmental and economic consequences of foreign oil sources. Production of Venezuela has decimated the industry because of Maduro and his socialist policies, Pyle noted. They don't produce oil and gas as clean as we do here. Their oil is worse for the environment than our oil. It's not about the climate. It's about an agenda where they do not want these resources in this country. In addition, American jobs are likely to suffer with Pyle predicting a crushing impact from outsourcing jobs to Venezuela. It's not just the jobs in red states like Texas and Louisiana, oil and gas industry, they're caterers, there's banks, there's real estate agents, pile listed. There's folks in Minnesota who bring the sand over, the boots. It's not just jobs in the industry, it's jobs across the entire economy. The decision by the Biden administration is the latest step in the softening of hostile relations between the U.S. and Venezuelan governments. It came weeks after a major prisoner swap in which Venezuela freed seven imprisoned Americans in exchange for the U.S. freeing two nephews of Maduro's wife. Maduro released two other Americans in March. What a joke.
Does the government do anything on the up and up? Americans are hurting. We have massive inflation, gas prices through the roof. We're relying on all these foreign countries that we don't get along with to provide us for basic necessities that we could be providing for ourselves and be self-sufficient with. We should always try to be self-sufficient and not rely on other countries for our basic needs. The Biden administration's done nothing but take us backwards and turning us into a third world country in the process. Sickening. Denver, Colorado, the U.S. Marshals District of Colorado, in coordination with the Aurora Police Department and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, recently wrapped up a two-week multi-agency effort dubbed Operation Lost and Found to locate or recover critically endangered missing children throughout the Denver metropolitan area. From November 7th to 18th, federal investigators coordinated with the Aurora Police Department and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to locate or recover a total of 11 critically endangered missing children, resulting in one arrest of an adult subject for alleged interference with a custodial order. Once recovered, the Aurora Police Department worked with the Colorado Department of Human Services to determine where each child would be returned or if other placement was necessary. The two-week initiative was the culmination of several months of planning and coordination between the Marshals, District of Colorado, Aurora PD, Colorado Department of Human Services, Colorado Bureau of Investigations, Homeland Security Investigations, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The children recovered had all been reported missing to local law enforcement entered into the National Crime Information Center database, and reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as missing. These children between the ages of 12 and 17 were considered to be some of the most at-risk and challenging recovery cases in the area based on indications of high-risk factors such as victim victimization of child sex trafficking, child exploitation, sex abuse, physical abuse, and medical or mental health condition names and more detailed information about their respective cases is not being released in order to protect the identities and privacy of those involved. The operation is the first dedicated missing child operation conducted by the U.S. Marshal Service in Colorado. Well, maybe they should just contact Homeland Security and find out where they sent all these migrant children to. Of course, none of those kids have the luxury of being reported to any of these agencies even private agencies that monitor lost and missing children. It would be nice to see the mainstream media pick up the story about Homeland Security allowing migrant children to be placed with the child traffickers. Something needs to be done about that. My question about this is, why isn't the person... Uh, involved or people involved or groups involved in this child sex trafficking being talked about or released to the public so that we can know who's doing this. There's nothing about it. Complete information blackout. And this isn't the first time in Denver or the Colorado area that this has happened, just August of this year. The FBI Denver's Child Exploitation Human Trafficking Task Force joined with some 40 agencies across the Front Range August 4th through 6th in Operation Cross Country, a national intelligence-driven FBI initiative focused on identifying and locating child victims of sex trafficking. The operation also investigates and arrests individuals and criminal enterprises involved in the sex trafficking of both children and adults. In Denver, the permanent task force includes detailees from the Denver Police Department, Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office, Colorado State Patrol, Douglas County Sheriff's Office, and the 17th Judicial District Attorney's Office. They were joined by state and local agencies, the U.S. Marshal Service, and victim advocacy groups. During this operation, the FBI Denver Field Office and our partners recovered and provided services to 11 child victims of sexual exploitation. In addition, 27 missing or endangered children were located and they were offered services. 11 adult victims were recovered, 6 traffickers were identified, and 2 were arrested on unrelated felony warrants. The Denver Field Office located more victims than any other field office in the country and were tied for the, 
for a first in the number of subjects identified or arrested. Who are these people and why is it not being publicized? What criminal organizations are doing this? Or what individuals are involved? These things should be made public. I think we can all make assumptions on about who is doing this, but it should be public. It, we shouldn't have to play guessing games or dig for it. It should just be out there. There's absolutely no reason. Any other criminal case that makes the news always talks about the suspects involved and who they are and what their motivations were. Why is it such a secret? Now, here is a story that I can get behind from a Democrat. And I see a lot of Republicans and conservatives upset about this. But I work around the homeless every day, and this is something that needs to happen. New York City is going to involuntarily remove mentally ill people from the streets. Mayor Eric Adams directed the police and emergency medical workers to hospitalize people they deem too mentally ill to care for themselves, even if they pose no threat to others. Acting to address a crisis we all see around us toward the end of a year that has seen a string of high-profile crimes involving homeless people, Mayor Eric Adams announced a major push on Tuesday to remove people with severe, untreated mental illness from the city's streets and subways. Mr. Adams, who has made clearing homeless encampments a priority since taking office in January, said the effort would require involuntary hospitalizing people who were a danger to themselves, even if they posed no risk or harm to others, arguing the city had a moral obligation to help them. The common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless a person is violent, Mr. Adams said in an address at City Hall. Going forward, we will make every effort to assist those who are suffering from mental illness. Officials in New York said the city would roll out training immediately to police officers, emergency medical services staff, and other medical personnel to ensure compassionate care. But the city's new directive on the policy acknowledges that the case law does not provide extensive guidance on regarding removals for mental health evaluations based on short interactions in the field. Policy immediately raised questions about who exactly would be swept up in it, and some advocates for people with mental illness warned it could face legal challenges. Well... I would argue that these people are a danger to the public and just because they haven't acted out violently yet doesn't mean we shouldn't take action. Why are we waiting to respond to somebody being violently attacked before we decide to do something about it? I see these people on the streets of Seattle every day and they're out of their minds. They don't know where they're at. They don't know what's going on. They don't dress appropriately for the weather. Some of them have no shoes. Uh, it's freezing cold outside right now. You call that compassionate to leave these people on the street when they cannot care for themselves? It's not right. It's not right. They need to be taken into uh, some sort of mental health facility where they can be counseled and hopefully given the treatment they need to come back to normal. I don't understand why anybody is against this. I think all these big cities need to adopt this plan, and these people need to be taken off the streets. They need to be given the help that they need. And I would go one step further and say the ones that are out there openly using drugs also need to be swept up and put into some sort of treatment facility. I'm tired of going around the city and seeing open drug use, garbage, graffiti, uh, you know, these people screaming and hollering and acting completely out of their mind. You don't know what they're going to do from one moment to the next. Sitting at a stoplight just yesterday and some homeless guy came up to the woman in the car next to me and started screaming at her that she needs to die. She needs to die. He walked past her and then decided to screaming the whole time that she needs to die. Then he turned around and came back right up to her passenger side window, starts yelling at her through the window that she's, she needs to die. He's going to kill her. 
light change, she goes, he walks off. There's people walking by on the sidewalk. What's he going to do to somebody that he walks past? This needs to stop. This is not normal. You should be able to walk around the streets of your town or city without fear of being attacked by some lunatic. I'm sorry, but your right to act like a raving lunatic mindlessly walking the streets does not outweigh my right to feel safe if I'm out and about with my kids or even by myself walking around. It just doesn't. There's no place for that in cities or towns. So yeah, I fully support Mayor Adams' plan to do this, and I would like to see it implemented in cities across the country. These people need to be taken off the streets. Well, we all heard the pros and mostly cons of ivermectin during the COVID pandemic with the mainstream painting it as a animal drug that it was for horses. While there is a veterinarian version of ivermectin used for horses, there is a human version as well that has been around for decades and is an anti-parasite medication used to treat parasitic diseases. It is FDA approved for use in humans to treat a variety of parasitic infections, including parasitic worms, hookworm, and whipworm may also be used as an effective treatment for a wide range of other conditions to do with your intestines and other infections. The antiviral activity of ivermectin has been shown against a wide range of RNA and DNA viruses, for example, Dengog, Zika, yellow fever, and others. Not to mention other countries used it to treat COVID during the pandemic. Uh, African countries, Asia-Pacific countries, including Japan, and some European countries used ivermectin. Well, now there is a lawsuit against the FDA regarding ivermectin. Boyden Gray and Associates filed a lawsuit in June on behalf of three doctors who alleged the U.S. Food and Drug Administration illegally interfered with their doctor-patient relationships, resulting in harm. They also claim that the FDA broke the law when the agency issued statements prohibiting the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19. In response to the lawsuit, lawyers for the FDA claimed that its guidance for people to stop taking ivermectin for COVID-19 was informal and just a recommendation. Hmm, do you remember it that way? As such, they weren't mandating against it. However, in an interview that aired on NTD's Newsmakers on November 23rd, Dr. Scott Atlas, a senior fellow in healthcare policy at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, confirmed that the FDA did indeed take an unprecedented approach against ivermectin and said that their defense amounts to the FDA trying to rewrite COVID history. This is unprecedented, frankly, in my 30 years as a doctor, where the use of an FDA-approved drug was somehow forbidden if you used it or off-label, Alice stated. In the United States, that's standard of care. The standard of care, Alice explained, is that once the FDA approves a drug, doctors are allowed to use the drug to treat other conditions. Atlas added that ivermectin was approved by the FDA and was found to be so safe that billions of doses have been given. He said that ivermectin is available over-the-counter in many countries without a doctor's prescription. This was really a shocking interference of the ability of a doctor to do his job, Atlas said. Atlas alleged that the FDA didn't just forbid ivermectin. Instead, its language was such that pharmacists and pharmacies refused to fill prescriptions from doctors. Such a stance was really unprecedented, Atlas said. Further, Atlas said, there's an overall Orwellian rewrite of what the advice was on a bigger picture. He pointed out that Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House COVID-19 response coordinator, claims that she opposed lockdowns, and Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, claims he opposed school closings. The NIH could have done definitive clinical trials in the spring of 2020. Instead, they blocked those trials. They made people afraid of those drugs so that even when trials were attempted, patients were not willing to enter into those trials. 
Allison stated unequivocally that the position taken by the NIH and the FDA was an ethical abuse of public health. Well, I think we all saw this going on. And you've got states like California that have actually created medical boards that will remove doctors' medical licenses if they do or prescribe drugs that the state deems against their beliefs or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. And this state medical board in California isn't even completely made up of doctors. I think there's a 15-member board and less than half of them are doctors. Why do you have politicians telling doctors how to do their jobs? These politicians didn't go to medical school. They've got no business making medical decisions. It's all about money and control. Just follow the money because that's where this all leads. Big money. Who's invested in these pharmaceutical companies? All these politicians, Republicans included. As much as I like to watch Rand Paul rip on Dr. Fauci, his wife invested in these pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and Moderna. So as much as you want to believe some of these politicians are standing up for your rights, they're invested in these pharmaceutical companies. They're invested in the big money makers. Ivermectin only costs a few dollars. It's not a big money maker. These vaccines are big money. And I have railed at length about foreign companies owning uh, property in the U.S. and businesses that produce things to do with our infrastructure, energy, building materials, farming, all this stuff. We should not be allowing foreign countries to own these things within the United States. If we have resources in the United States, then they should be owned by American companies, plain and simple. A Canadian company is hoping to get approval and federal funding for a new lithium mine in northern Nevada, but former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Republican lawmakers are raising concerns about the mining company's largest shareholder, a Chinese firm. The mining company is going through with an effort to dilute this Chinese ownership, but concerns remain about China's potential influence over the critical mineral mine at a time when China is seeking to overtake the U.S. as a dominant global power. Lithium Americas, a Canadian-based company, has been trying to get approval from the U.S. federal government to proceed with its Thacker Pass mine in northern Nevada for years, but is waiting for approval to begin mining. The company is already facing a variety of legal challenges to the new mining project, including from Native American environmental groups. But the Republican politicians are also honing in on the mining company's largest shareholder, China-based Gangfang Lithium Company, LTD. Lithium is a key material for electric batteries. Lithium Americas is trying to get approval for the Thacker Pass mine at a time when China controls roughly 60% of the world's lithium resources and has a commanding position over the electric battery supply chain. Bloomberg Law reported that the U.S. currently only has one lithium mine in operation at Albemarle Silver Peak in southwestern Nevada. Adding to the concern, Senator Tom Cotton said Gangfeng is partly owned by China's ruling Ch Communist Ch Chinese Party. With all the projects that Democrats want done and having everybody move to electric, lithium is going to become a critical infrastructure resource for the United States. And we have one mine. We have available mines to mine from in this country that are not tapped yet and they should be owned by American companies. These should not be foreign owned companies. We should not be farming our resources out to foreign countries. Our government needs to adopt an America first policy and any sort of business that has to do with American infrastructure needs to be American-owned. It's not just the Chinese 
you know, foreign governments in general should not own American infrastructure. U.S. ports are owned by foreign companies, over 30% of them, in fact. According to Time Magazine, over 80% of the terminals in the Port of Los Angeles are run by foreign-owned companies, including the government of Singapore. They operate the Port of Los Angeles, Oakland, Seattle, and Dutch Harbor, Alaska. Chinese government-owned companies control terminals in the Port of Los Angeles and other West Coast ports as well as both ends of the Panama Canal. Foreign companies, governments, also own American airports, railroads, and nuclear power plants. Is everything for sale in America? Are these politicians just throwing it all on the auction block to see how much they can align their pockets while selling off American interest? The U.S. government would like to claim that it's got the ideology of privatizing these entities that should be government-controlled, but it's not privatization if you sell it to a foreign company or government or a foreign company that is partially owned by that government. These policies are pure insanity. Again, America first. And here's the best news I've heard in a while. CNN has informed employees that layoffs are underway. Warner Brothers Discovery owned CNN's top boss, Chris Lich, informed employees in an all-staff memo on Wednesday that layoffs are underway, according to an email seen by Reuters. Lich said that CNN would notify a limited number of individuals, largely some of its paid contributors on Wednesday, and the impacted employees on Thursday, according to the memo. More details would come Thursday afternoon. Bye bye Thank you for listening to Net News Network Headline News brought to you by the Behind the Line Podcast. For more, you can listen to us at the Behind the Line Podcast.com or right here on Net News Network. We can also be found on Facebook, YouTube, Truth Social, Parlor, Gab, Twitter, Telegram, Reddit, Spotify iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and anywhere else your favorite podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe and share.